Hi, uh, and welcome to Open School of Business. Today, I have a pleasure to introduce you to Jill James. She's the founder of SIF Industries and she's the financial coach. She has more than 20 years of work experience in corporate world, and now she's helping small businesses and mostly female founders to wrap their heads around their financials and uh, build strategies uh, to build better businesses. So today, as we will be discussing the COVID-19 impact on the economy in some of the government relief programs, uh, Jill, Jill is a, a, a to-go person for this type of advice, and she's already here to announce some of the challenges they're facing together with their clients. Uh, hi, Jill. I'm hi, really happy you joined. Thank you for having me today. I know this is a really challenging time of, of change and figuring things out for all of us. So I hope what we talk about today can be you know, really helpful for people and give them a bit of peace of mind. Yes, uh, before we start really diving into the topic that all of us are anxious to hear about, uh, can you share just a couple of words about your business right now and uh, also your work experience that has led you into this new venture? Sure, sure. So I started SIF Industries about five years ago. It'll be five years in June, um, and we've been uh, in, in our current form for about four. Um, so what I do and my team, um, we work with um, self-funded small business owners, founders, um, who come from creative and non-managerial backgrounds. So they may have had a product or service idea or, you know, something that they wanted to do, but not necessarily um, the foundation in operations, finance, accounting, um, kind of those core operations areas. Um, so what we do is partner with those founders in order to help them advance their CEO skills um, and help be the other side of the business for them, especially for people that don't have a co-founder. Um, we help them think through um, how to set up their business for success, what kind of unit costs their business has, what kind of overhead they have, um, and really thinking through a strategic plan over 6, 12, 24 months um, to look at how we're going to, what we do, what we're going to do today and what investments we're going to make to make sure that their vision becomes a reality at the pace that they want and so they can pay themselves um, what they're aiming to pay themselves. So that's really the focus of my business. So you can see how we're um, very busy right now <laughs> since strategic yes. plans have wildly changed uh, in the last six weeks. Yes, uh, I'm really uh, happy to have a speaker that's um, almost on the front line of uh, financial protection during this time for businesses. Um, and uh, I think it is really interesting that you mentioned so clearly about your um, clients, that they're the creatives and they're the self-funded uh, founders. Is there any reason that you decided to work with that specific niche, especially the self-funded part I'm interested in? Mm -hmm. um, well, part of it is just numbers. I mean, 98% of companies never have an investor take funding, right? So. I know that most of the world we see in TechCrunch and in the press, it's you know, very exciting to see venture-backed, high-growth businesses that are in new areas, and that's where most of the press and, and PR and writing is for, but that's really only 2% of companies. Um, and as I started to work with both 
self-funded founders and venture-backed founders, I found that like the thinking support um, much more was needed on the, the self-funded side, people who are bootstrapping, because every decision we make is important. We can't just throw money at things um, in order to try something for growth. So we really have to think through our strategy, especially in sort of the phase where a founder has done what they know how to do, right? Gotten that initial product market fit, found some traction, but then they also kind of hit the limit of the skills that they have, and they're not quite ready to hire a team yet. So I, I felt like with my background, I've been in investment banking, I've been the COO to venture-backed startups, um, I've been a financial advisor, I've been in marketing. Um, so with all of that put together, like that was a big hole that I saw that I could fill for those businesses um, and something that really helped them through a place of um, likely failure, right, in their second or third year. Um, and in my own business, I saw like when I got to my second year too, I thought about going back to a job, right? I mean, it just, it takes mm -hmm. longer than you think to get over the hump with starting a business. Um, so that's really when I kind of doubled down and recommitted to um, a lot of people coming through somewhere between their first and fourth year are just going to hit this point where uh, they exceed what they know how to do. Either they're really good at sales, but they haven't built any infrastructure, or they're really good at um, they're they're really good at customer service, or really good at like running their product, but they don't necessarily have the foundational elements of of running a business, and that's bogging them down from doing the stuff that they're good at. So if we can get them through that point and like get that first critical hire, second critical hire into their team. Um, that's really my focus to keep, um, especially women who have started their businesses because corporate America didn't give them a path to where they wanted to go in terms of the balance they were looking for. Um, that was important to me for myself and for others to, to be able to help them get through that period of, um, I don't know if I can do this, right? Really, uh, it's not quite going as well as I thought I'd, I'd hoped and I'm not sure how to make it go better. Um, and um, because I've um, focused on early stage business for the last 10 years, I felt like that was a place where I really uniquely could help people get through that period and set up their business for sustainable success in the long term. Yes, and that, that is so important that as a woman, uh, you saw that niche and you thought about it and uh, decided to give back to that community, first of all. And especially knowing that you come from a background where you already knew a lot of venture-backed venture uh, enterprises, you know, it could have been uh, sort of an easy transition for you just to keep working with those clients. Um, but uh, would that make more financial sense for you, for example? What do you think in, in a sense of sustainability? Or do you also get certain percentages uh, as a um, non-official co-founder of the businesses that you're working with? Um, well, in terms of the venture versus non-venture backed, um, what I find with venture is they, they just quickly move through the phase of um, getting set up and moving into hiring. Um, so odds are that their portfolio, either, you know, their VC or a portfolio manager has said, hey, here are some companies we'd like you to work with, right? Here's a outsourced CFO. Here are, you know, these types of companies. So, you know, if you have funding and you can afford to spend that kind of money on an outsourced team, um, they quickly put a team together most of the time. Most venture-backed companies quickly move through the phase that I'm in 
and move to having some sort of outsourced team or use equity to bring people in-house that reduce salaries at a much more accelerated pace. So my life cycle with venture-backed companies was pretty short, right? It was either figuring out um, how to put together pro formas or how to put together some kind of strategic plan to help them get funded, right? At which point they had no money <laughs> or um, kind of figuring out like, what, what do we do in this next phase? But once they get, you kind of get through and get funded, then, you know, venture-backed companies quickly take on a lot of outsourced partners that are meant to help them through venture. Um, and it is a very different set of um, the way you're setting up your accounting, the, the way that the, the systems that you need, the investments that you're making. If you're on this really accelerated growth path, your life looks very different in six months than it does if you're self self-funded, right? We have to make a choice about every single dollar that we spend um, versus, hey, it's in our business plan, it's in our funding, we're just going to spend it. So to me, the, um, I've had a much longer life cycle with my clients, um, anywhere from six months up to, you know, I've been working with some for like two and a half years, right? So um, I, I just, I found that it was uh, more suited to my skill set and um, that we could kind of have a supportive relationship for a longer amount of time um, in the self-funded world. Right. And I think um, it's great that uh, people who took a risk on their own money have, uh, have support and have consultants that are uh, willing to work with them. Because if you think about it, like even recently, uh, one of my friends who's an entrepreneur was looking for a, a PR company and there were not really a lot of PR companies who wanted to do business with a small mm -hmm. business. Um, so I'm sure it's the same uh, situation with the financial sector, where not all of the banks, where not all the financial advisory companies are willing to take smaller self-funded uh, founders. Uh, so it's really awesome. And uh, uh, I think my question about the clientele that you have and their sort of statistics and the numbers. Um, what is the average um, uh, NPV on some of these projects that they're starting? Uh, at which year they're starting to see any profit or even break even? Um, you know, a lot of my clients are profitable from the first day. Um, there isn't a lot of dip um, because they don't have a lot of capital to invest. So often we start with some services uh, or something that gives them a way to, to discover something scalable. Um, and I often encourage people who ask me about like, I don't feel like I have that big scalable idea yet, but they have a service that they could offer. I often encourage them to get started that way. Um, several of the venture-backed companies that I worked for um, before this, prior to starting Sith Industries, came from services, right? There was something that they did and they heard a critical need from the customers that they were working with and those customers trusted them to solve it and gave them runway to develop their product on those customers' time, right? And said, we're gonna support you in this. Just let us know when it's ready. Um, <clears throat> so I actually think by doing the work, you can discover what that scalable product is. Um, and that's something that I often work on with my clients, especially those that have been in a consulting space or in a services space of is there something that we can transition to where we can make a little bit bigger investment, but kind of build it as we go, roll it out to the customers that you have, is there another problem that we can solve for them? So a lot of these businesses 
we've hit a natural pivot point where we go from, um, you know, dollar for service, right? Um, kind of a time and money matchup where we can, we can find some leverage, right? We hit a moment where there's the right answer to put that product into market. Um, but at that point, we're typically looking at, you know, less than $100,000 of investment to get it off the ground. Some is, you know, as little with the team that they have might be 10 or 15,000. You know, we're not talking like super, super substantial investment because this is something that, you know, they can do internally or that they've already partially worked on or partially built to one client, saw that it worked and they want to scale it. Um, so it then becomes a conversation about how big do you want to get and do you want to take equity? So my goal for most for my clients that want to is uh, the idea would be to get them to the size where they can look at a strategic investor. Um, one investor can do a single infusion of capital help them grow really quickly and then have an exit. Um, but we start from a place of the owner has almost 100% of the cap table. Um, and they usually don't have very much debt, if any. Um, so it's you know a wonderful place where you can get to 2.55 million in sales and suddenly a private equity investor looks at it and is like, wow, they have a really dedicated audience. They've built this amazing business. They have a clean balance sheet. Like what could we do if we plugged it into our resources? as a strategic investor, and then it just takes off. Um, so that's more the path for the companies that I work with. Some of them just want a long-term sustained thing that they own, right? There isn't an exit horizon. They just want this to be their business. Um, and some of them are more on like, how do we get to this size with you know, a clean balance sheet so that we can move into a strategic round. Yes, and I think um, you mentioned that you worked in marketing as well. You were a VP of marketing. Um, and uh, do you also get involved with some of the marketing decisions that businesses make? Um, at this point, I really, I really don't. Uh, what we'll talk about is tactics that you should use in the budgets that are appropriate for the, for the results that you want to look for. Um, I think a lot of uh, small companies underinvest in marketing, right, or expect that social media is a free marketing opportunity, right? There's no money that has to go into that, it's just time. Um, so part of um, building a good strategic plan is making sure for the growth that we're looking for that we have enough dollars dedicated for paid media, for PR, for things that we have to pay for, or thinking about someone we bring in-house. Um, so that's what I help in more of a corporate marketing strategy. Um, who is our customer? How are we reaching them? What kind of channels do we need? And how much money, hard money versus, you know, soft efforts do we need in that? But in terms of executing on that, I introduce them to partners to do that work for them. Right. Especially social media is definitely not free because there's a digital <laughs> marketing strategy that you need to pay lots and lots of money. And I think uh, this is a very interesting question just popped up in my head because you mentioned about being able to sell and certain investors looking for investment. Have you seen during this uh, economic confusion times these days, especially with the COVID-19 impact, have there been any investors looking to buy up some companies that are struggling and have there been certain clients that were wondering, should I uh, try and make up some of the money that I invested and, and call it a day by failing fast uh, and maybe doing something else with the, their money and their time? Yeah, 
I think it depends where we are in the process. Um, so far, you know, this is so new. I think depending on for where you are, I'm in, I'm in Los Angeles, so we're a month into this already, right? There are other places that really this got real last Friday, right? So what I see is there's a change management process and an ex a process of, you know, when I think about it, it's like really the five stages of grief and, you know, the sixth stage of grief is uh, making things meaningful, right? You have to come to acceptance and then you can make things meaningful. So depending on where you are in getting your head around what's happening for you personally, for your business, for your family, what you wanna do and how quickly you moved into um, accepting that what was happening is real and that you're gonna need to deal with it for a certain amount of time and that it has an impact, um, that makes a difference. So I haven't seen investors yet they, the deals they have in place, they've finished, right? Everything that's been announced has been long planned. Um, I don't see anyone looking yet to scoop up any value because they are still trying to figure out like what's in their portfolio, what's their exit horizon and what money do they have right now that they need to use. They're still going through that process. And I think a lot of investors right now are trying to help the companies that they have that have issues with the affiliation rule so that they can get these SBA monies. Um, so they're really busy with that. Um, I, so I think we're looking at a couple of weeks of disruption before they can really get proactive and go back out and say, okay, maybe some of those companies that we talked to, to six months ago that didn't want to sell are like, I don't want to deal with this. <laughs> right? Or maybe we can buy them. Or maybe there are um, some folks who, you know, given their um, adjusted valuation on these sales, maybe we could make that deal. So I, I think it's, it's just because all of us are on our own pace of adjustment. Um, people who have adapted really fast, I think this week, we'll be looking for those people who are maybe frightened and like, yeah, let's just get something done. I want to guarantee my future. I think you'll see that this week, next week for smaller company deals. Um, but it, it, as a whole in the industry, I haven't seen that yet. Yes. Uh, and I think that uh, you've been talking about how you've been already working with your clients in helping them uh, start getting their application in for paycheck protection program, for the economic injury disaster mm -hmm. loans. Uh, so how did that process go? Uh, maybe in a couple of words, you can share some of the stories and also just a little bit of a guidance to anyone who's interested in doing that um, today from our podcast audience? Sure. Um, so, so far, the, the two programs you mentioned, the Paycheck, Paycheck Protection Program, I think we have to remember just got passed into law a week ago Saturday. So this is probably the fastest action between the government and banks that's ever been take, taken, undertaken on this scale. Um, so the fact that loans could start to be underwritten last Friday is pretty incredible. Um, I know it's very frustrating if you filled out paperwork and refilled out paperwork and, you know, the, the goalposts keep moving about what you need to submit. That part is very frustrating. Um, but knowing that, um, you know, the banks and the government are working together to try to amend every process that they can to get this money into people's hands in the next seven to 10 days, um, that to me... Uh, deserves a little bit of credit for the Herculean effort. Some banks have worked harder than others. Um, and I think the banks that I see that have had their teams on this, that have moved customer service people over and retrained them, that they've gotten forms up online, 
you know, I have other banks that I work with that are starting to try today. So this is one of those places where um, investments in technology are really going to come through. Banks that value customer service, it's really going to come through. Um, so, you know, it, we just kind of have to go through this. Um, so one of the things that um, just before we came online, I had a client reach out and say, hey, Wells Fargo just rejected everybody's application, right? And so Wells Fargo is one of the top 10 SBA lenders. If they're out of the game and they're not taking on their existing customers, all those customers have to go somewhere, right? They still, and they finish their applications. And, you know, I, that's unbelievably frustrating, right? That your bank said yes, and then they said no, and they I think the urgency to deal with the Paycheck Protection Program is um, it's a $350 billion fund. And because franchised restaurant owners with locations up to 500 people are allowed to, to be in on it, they can you know, get $10 million at a, at a clip. People are really feeling like this money is going to disappear. So the urgency of I've got to get my application in the queue, that's where some of this frustration is coming from because we just don't know if Congress will extend an additional round of funds like that hasn't been clarified. Um, so with the PPP, what I've been telling clients is like if uh, the first piece is understanding who's eligible because this is such a wider swath um, with unemployment, with PPP, with the EDIL loans, the self-employed can apply, right? If you have 1099 income from the past year, you can apply. If you're self-employed, you can apply, right? You're an independent contractor, say at a hair salon or a dog groomer or, you know, gig, you, you drive for Uber, right? The self-employed can apply. So this is a big difference because I think the big spike in, in unemployment numbers we saw last week was self-employed people applying for unemployment for the first time. So we're going to see how that shakes out. But I think with these bigger government programs, understanding that, if you are an individual and you're not incorporated as a business, you've just been doing business as you, this still applies to you. If you're a not-for-profit, this still applies for you. If you're a veterans organization, if you're a single-member LLC, if you're a single-member S-Corp, all of these programs are for you. Um, it's just figuring out, like, how do you get access to them and what's the right way to apply. Right. Um, so what do you do if one of your bank, I mean, the bank that you're working with has rejected you. Can you go to a different bank with the yes. same application? Yes. So the foundational requirements for applying for the PPP in terms of the, the evidence that you need and like the calculation that you do, that's standard. Each bank has their own application um, in terms of their anti-money laundering and their know your customer requirements they're going to ask you to fill out their application. But the calculation that you did about your eligibility and how you're proving that eligibility, those documents are the same. So you will have to fill out a new bank's application process, but the work that you did to get ready in terms of what's the number you're applying for and the backup documentation, that'll be the same. Um, but if you were with one of um, these major banks, right, a, a large commercial lending institution that's national, um, I would say the next place to look, um, and I, we can share this with your audience, but um, if you just type into Google top 100 SBA lenders, there are some lists out there of the top, you know, already approved SBA lenders. Um, once you start to get past number 10, they start to be regional banks, right? Um, things that exist in your area. Um, 
And some of them you, you may not know, but you can look up their reviews online. And there are a lot of community lenders out there that are local banks in your area that are hungry for your business and happy to help you. Um, so, you know, your account will be in a different place. It's one more bank account to manage, but certainly those other banks can help you get set up and, and get these loans online. And in fact, what we saw last Friday was only the very small uh, community lenders. They were the only ones who were able to get same day applications through for their clients. Um, mm -hmm. So those clients already have money in the bank, whereas I know uh, at my bank, I filled out my form, but I'm waiting to get a call from them to verify some information. I know my application isn't in yet. It's not completed. So you may have a faster track if you go to a smaller regional bank or community bank that can help you with this. Mm -hmm. And also, if you're self-employed, like you said, you can apply for unemployment and mm -hmm. you can apply for PPP at the same time or you have to choose. You can do both. Um, so if your employment has gone to zero as of last week in all 50 states, you can apply for unemployment. Um, what will happen is once you get approved for the PPP, the whole idea of the PPP is it gives you eight weeks of payroll, rent, benefits, and utilities coverage, and you have to use it in eight weeks or else you have to pay it back. The only way it's forgivable is you have to use 75% of your money for those purposes in the eight weeks after the loan hits your bank account, right? So that's when your clock starts. So technically, if up to the point that you get that PPP money, you have no money coming into your business as a self-employed person or otherwise, you're technically unemployed. Um, so you can un apply for unemployment benefits today um, and once you're able to start paying yourself, um, unemployment doesn't have to be a 100% on 100% uh, off type of thing. Once you're qualified as unemployment, if there are weeks that you get wages, you simply don't apply for, you don't collect unemployment that week, right? Mm -hmm. So if you have two or three weeks before your PPP funding comes through, you can get unemployment during those weeks, right? And once you're able to pay your salary again using the PPP money, you won't file for unemployment, right? You won't collect in those weeks and you'll pay yourself. Now, eight weeks down the road, when you've used all your PPP funding and you can't pay your salary anymore, you've already qualified for unemployment. If the situation is the same and you have no money coming in, then rather than having to go through the whole approval and application process again, you simply call in weekly and start collecting your unemployment again. So it's a good way to bridge on either side of the PPP if you're not sure what's going to happen. I've been encouraging to do unemployment now because we don't know how long PPP is going to take. Right. And uh, just to be clear on the rent, utilities, and the mortgage interest, uh, mm -hmm. you say, uh, the, do they have to be for your business specifically or can they be for your residential uh, wherever you're living? Can it cover that? Um, the PPP has to be for qualified business expenses. So if you're going to use it for mortgage interest, it has to be um, you the pay the mortgage owned by the business. Mm -hmm. right? It has to be in the name of the business. Um, and I did have this question come up because you, know, you can use um, your, on, on your taxes, you get a tax break right, for using a home office space. You technically are not paying money out for that. You get that as a tax credit. So you're not paying rent actively on your space. If you on the books over the last year have been booking a rent expense for yourself, um, then you can show that you have a rent expense over the last 12 months for your business. 
But if you haven't been booking it that way, which most of us don't, right? We just take the tax break. If you haven't been formally booking an expense for rent, then you don't have proof of paying rent. So you won't be able to claim that. So um, it seems like it has been a really moving target with all the application requirements, even uh, getting the bank that is working with you to review the application. Has there been any other new developments that you think that small businesses should look out for? Sure. Um, So one of them is that um, as of last Thursday, we came to understand that companies that run as business with a business bank account with an EIN or like a sole proprietor who runs their business separately from their personal accounts, they were eligible to apply starting last Friday. That's what we're working on now. If you are a pure self-employed independent contractor or a sole proprietor who doesn't have a separate business bank account, you probably, you can get ready, but your application starts on April 10th, this Friday. So if you've been going to your bank and wondering why with your personal bank account, they won't let you apply, that's why. They're not ready for that yet um, because it is such a different standard than a business standard. Um, So if you are self-employed or independent contractor or gig worker and you haven't set up any kind of formal business structure, this Friday is the day that you'll be able to apply. So I think that's one that can, you know, contain a lot of frustration of, um, you know, waiting, just getting organized this week versus feeling that frustration of why isn't my bank helping me, right? So if you you know, are seeing the way that your large bank is handling things right now, you may want to explore this week a backup provider just in case this Friday you don't like the answer that they give you, (laughs) that you have a a second place to go right away where you know you can't have your paperwork ready and you can apply. Um, I think the other things that I'm also seeing overlooked in this is there are so many state, local, and private programs um, that will give you grant money or small loans that are immediately available um, I know the state of North Carolina has a bridge bridge program that until PPP kicks in, they're loaning people payroll coverage. Uh, Los Angeles has had a microloan program set up for about a month. Um, the state of California has its own emergency funds that you can apply for. Um, and then once you start to look online, um, there since I would say last Wednesday, a lot of companies with foundations have come forward with amounts between 10 and $100 million that they want to use to help small businesses. Like eBay announced a program last Friday, if you want to transform your business to open an online shop, they have $100 million that they're using to help brick and mortar retailers get online, right? And that's available right now, which is incredible, right? They'll help you get your store set up and, you know, help you with marketing and, and help you um, quickly get, you know, your payments set up for online use. So, I think you know programs like that that um, that private companies have set up. Um, they're usually just giving you the money or giving you the services. And so I would explore every avenue, right? State, local, private, and not just these large federal programs that are going to take between seven days and six weeks, depending on which program you're getting money from. Go and find those pockets, uh, smaller pockets of money that'll keep you afloat, where you can get a check you know, pretty quickly or immediately get access to a program. Right. That, that program that you mentioned from eBay sounds really wonderful because there are a lot of um, companies um, that are using Shopify for that. And, mm-hmm. and I'm sure this would be a much cheaper alternative. 
if it's completely free and they support you. And uh, especially if the source of all of your inventory is somewhere local, mm -hmm. because I know that some of the disruptions that happened with the supply chain, um, some of the supplies are just not coming in to the US from China or other mm -hmm. countries. So that uh, side of the business has been uh, hit as well. Um, and, but I've seen some people were very creative and uh, instead of actually selling their normal inventory of clothes or accessories, they started selling groceries and even toilet paper on their websites. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that is very interesting to see in these times. And uh, as an entrepreneur, have you thought about anything uh, new or creative um, in, as an opportunity for anyone who wants to start business right now? Yes. Um, earlier in the year, I had been working on an online course um, to be able to scale a little bit more of what, what I do with my clients um, into something that's for people who are a little bit earlier in the business life cycle, either thinking of starting a business or have recently started a business and want to get a jump, not get to the point where it like, you know, they feel kind of stuck, but like, let's, you know, want to figure this out and get a good foundation in how do they develop and build their business. So I'm really pushing that program forward and working to get it online this month um, so that all of these folks, um, you know, that find themselves out of a job and are kind of wondering, do I want to go through this again, right? Should I, should I look for a job or should I just start something, right? And for other folks who are saying like, you know, even if I take this PPP money, my margins weren't great, right? This isn't, wasn't working great in a really good economy. So maybe I should look at like, can I do this differently? Should I pivot? And, and what would that look like? And, and, you know, how would I, what would I need to do over the next two or three months to, to make that work? Yeah. Um, so that's really um, my focus because it doesn't make sense. We talked about this on a little bit on our panel. Um, there are just, there are businesses out there that no matter what the economy, the economics of the business are not good enough to get them to where they want to go. Right. And so this is a time where you can make that decision of like, do I want to hang in and run my business the same way? Or do I want to use this as an opportunity to try something else, to pivot, to test something out, um, to see if we can do this in a different way or maybe do an entirely different thing um, and see if that works better than this, especially in this time where, you know, you're able to pay a team um, and have a couple months of runway, but they may not have a lot to do. Right. So, you know, if you're if you're in that position where you have a couple of employees that you're going to pay for eight weeks, but your business is pretty quiet. Um, why not get together and brainstorm some other things that you could do and deploy them and start to try them out? Um, because, you know, I think we all have we have a little window of time here, but it's not going to last forever where business will start up again and you can start doing things the way that you were or you can figure out like where the holes were in your business maybe where your operations could work better things that have broken that you have a chance over the next couple of weeks to shore up you know things that just weren't functional for you you know get yeah. those things on track um, and be ready that when business reopens yes it's going to be slower than it was you know in February but you know, it's, it's an opportunity to make those adjustments and become back as a stronger company. Um, but the other thing that you can do is I do have a newsletter. Um, if you go to 
uh, bit.ly slash SIF newsletter. Um, you can sign up for my newsletter or on my website, SIF Industries is a pop-up for the newsletter. And we've been promoting uh, the course signups through that. So that's another way that you can do it since I can't right. find that URL right, right quickly. Um, but if you're on our newsletter list, you'll be notified of um, when we open the course beta. Okay, great. That's great. Yeah. You have uh, one funnel that you're taking all your clients in and then they can find out about all of your resources. And uh, I, I really loved our conversation about uh, how you can pivot and what are the programs out there to help you. And I really love the notion that you were talking about, maybe the business wasn't working as well as the person uh, would have planned in the beginning. So uh, what are the tools and techniques that you use to work with your clients to go through that situation? And maybe you can also uh, share some stories of your own personal business, how uh, you were talking about on the second year, it was really challenging. Yeah. And uh, what did you change to, uh, to really make it more sustainable and work? And uh, I, I really like that uh, notion that you were talking about, you were completely uh, online with your business and you were able to travel. And obviously now it's not a possibility, but for different reasons. <laughs> so uh, I'd like for our audience to, to dream of this new possibility for them where they would never actually have to step their step out of their house even if they wanted to and uh, still be profitable and do something they're passionate about so i think your story would really resonate with a lot of uh, people out there uh, and especially if you share uh, how you move through those challenges and you conquer them this will really give strength and courage to a lot of people Sure, I'm happy to share. I think my impetus for starting the business is trying to come say hi right now. <laughs> sure. um, so I started my business when I was seven months pregnant um, and I was COO of a venture-backed startup here in Los Angeles. Um, I'd been doing the job for about a year and I just realized that it wasn't going to work um, with having a family. Um, and so I had had a couple of people saw, you know, I was doing partnering. It was the second time I had partnered with a founder who really had um, a vision for the, where they wanted the business to go, but hadn't had the business background to necessarily run and scale the business. And I'd been brought in for that. Um, so I had had a, a couple of people approach me and say, hey, if you ever want to do this, you know, for yourself, I would hire you. I can't hire you full time, but if you'd like to, you know, try it, you will. So they were great. They didn't care that I was going to take some maternity leave. Like they were happy to have a couple of months of help. Um, so I started as a peer services business um, and really, you know, kind of worked on this. This is where I hit my critical point in the second year. I was basically doing the job that I had been doing, but now for three or four companies instead of just for one company um, and just as me. Um, and so that just, you know, became really challenging to do it that way. And it forced me to think about um, what, the, what would I do if my mandate was I wanted to help as many small business owners as possible. How could I help more, right? And what would be the right, what are the problems that I'm seeing that these businesses had that are common that I could address? 
And that was really in the second year where, you know, I stopped basically being a paycheck worker for myself and figured out a program that I could offer that had value in it. I got off of charging hourly and I started to put packages together and longer term contracts. Um, and I started to experiment with um, what kinds of things could I work with the small business owners that were in their budget, um, but that were meaningful and added a lot of value for them. Um, and that we could work on over a span of, you know, three months to a year, depending on kind of how things were going. Um, and that led to um, putting the business entirely online, right? Because at that point, I didn't have to um, travel to see people anymore. The only way to make that work was to do it virtually. Um, so I sort of mandated, you know, I couldn't be running all over LA in my car, plus get back in time for daycare pickup. Um, so I ma mandated uh, virtual work or else there was a premium associated with it. Um, and so at that point, uh, that was about two years ago, um, and I shifted much more to more of a, a coaching and workshop style, which let me work with companies at various phases. Um, and one of the, tool the tools that we use in that are really, um, we look at your unit costs, right? How you're doing business now um, and what your vision is for the business. And we go through your unit costs and really see, like, uh, is what you're selling today and the way they're running the business today, is that going to enable you to get to the size that you want to be to pay yourself the salary that you'd like to pay yourself <clears throat> and to, to be the vision of the business that you want to be? And if it's not, how do we start to adjust what you offer? Is it a different package of services? Is it a different inventory line item? Is it doing business in a slightly different way? But what can we brainstorm in order to pivot you, not all the way to something else, but is there something that you're doing, a piece of what you're doing that's more lucrative than other things, where we should stop doing some things and really start pushing on those things that will get you to where you wanna go. And I think that's the critical assessment that we do. Um, and then, you know, the people who get it just take off, right? We're not even done with our sessions yet. And they just go off and start selling those deals and, you know, start to see the benefits of it. And it really starts moving things forward. Um, so because I've been working that way, um, my family was able to go live in Spain uh, in for most of the school year of 2018-2019. Uh, so we were there from about August of 2018 until May of 2019. Um, we just, you know, got back last summer, um, but I ran my business remotely um, and, you know, frankly, other than the time difference, some people never even noticed, right? When I came back to LA and I met people, they were like, you were in Spain? I just thought we didn't meet because it was LA and there was traffic, um, mm -hmm. but, you know, they never really noticed it was dark outside when it was nine o'clock in the morning or things like that. Um, so I think, you know, people just want the help from where, you know, wherever you are, um, but, you know, we traveled, we went to like 11 countries and, you know, we traveled every other week and we took some longer trips um, and it was basically able to make the business work around that. So, you know, I, I've found that building, you know, it seemed like a crazy time to start a business when I had a new baby, but forcing myself to design the business around what my family's needs were and how we had to make things work um, has really paid off in the long run because of, um, the business design, uh, and I do work with this with my clients too, of like, how do we design your business so that if these things are important to you, they can be important to you and you don't feel like you have to compromise. Um, so that's been another big part uh, of what we do in terms of thinking about like, if you don't want to have to be in an office every day or you don't have to go on location, or even if you don't want to work a regular work schedule, 
how will we design this to make that work? Um, and I think if you actually conscientiously say, I want these things, like I want my life to look like this, then that really helps us figure out like both what's going to be suitably profitable to that and how do we deliver it in a way that gives you the life that you want. Which is something that like is not a VC conversation that we're going to have. You don't get to do lifestyle design if you're <laughs> venture backed. <laughs> you're yes. just going to work. <laughs> They're going to be so, running um, out of the door I found that as soon as they hear that. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's really wonderful. Uh, I think most of uh, the value that you really provide that you can take any client uh, at any stage of their business and uh, coach them through it to their dream state where they're making money the way they want to and the way um, they deserve um, to have that work-life balance and also really work on something that's meaningful to them. Mm -hmm. uh, and I really love the piece about uh, doing more of what is more profitable and the most important out of all the processes. And that's what I've been uh, working with my clients recently, especially with the COVID-19 impact of trying mm -hmm. to re-optimize their business processes to get only the essential ones and also to optimize it and adapt it to the new reality where you have to make sure your communication is aligned with what you're doing, which is like disinfecting, making sure there's, you know, touch-free deliveries and uh, things that are really around our new reality. And um, it is important to just focus on the most important, the most profitable part and when you do that, you can work smarter, not harder, and things will be just fine. So um, thank you so much for this conversation. And as the last question, I'd like to ask you, what is your uh, recently read favorite book? And maybe one book that is, has had uh, enormous impact on your career and on your personality development, just in general, what's your favorite one? Yeah. Um, so when I read recently, I really like, I read um, Samantha Power's book about um, her, how she came to be in public service and, you know, being the UN ambassador um, under Obama. I didn't know at the time that all the stuff she wrote about contagious diseases and fighting Ebola was going to become so prescient <laughs> But <laughs> when I finished that in February. Um, but I, I have found more and more things to go back to in that book about leadership and about um, how Solutions come from unconventional experiences that we have, um, that, you know, nothing is for nothing. Um, things that you did that maybe you're like, oh, that was a wrong turn in my life. There's something you learned from it that you can bring back that makes you a better leader because you had that experience that someone else did not. Um, so I thought that was a terrific book. Um, my go-to two books for everybody, uh, I, I once a year reread The Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz. I think that's the best book about being a founder that I've ever read. Um, it's very short chapters and it's very directly written. You know, it's just from his heart about why as a CEO, you're the only person who has the information to make the decisions that need to be made in certain points. You can have the best advisors in the world, but you ultimately have to decide. 
Um, and I think the tips that he has in that book for especially, you know, he goes through a couple downturns and businesses that don't work out the way that he expected them to before he hits on, uh, you know, and joins up with, with Mark Andreessen. Um, I think that right now is a great book to read if you're trying to find your path as a CEO and as a leader. Um, and the other one is um, Shoe Dog by Phil Knight about how he started Nike because Nike took no external funding, gave up no equity until their IPO. And it is an amazing story of how you can use conventional debt coverage to build your business, which I think has been largely forgotten. So um, mm -hmm. I, I love that book in terms of just some of the fundamentals of how to use your sales and leveraging your sales in order to build your business. Um, if it's something that you've never considered before, it's a fun book to read if you like Nike. You know, there are a lot of personal stories in there, but it's also a really good finance book. So yes. I really like that one. I really loved it also because it just shows you that you can always reinvent the wheel and uh, you, can, you can start selling shoes again or selling yeah. eyeglasses or selling uh, water bottles. Like anything can become a thing if you have the drive, if you have um, the passion for it, if you have uh, good customers and you talk to them and you know that they are looking for that specific uh, nugget that you're bringing, because it might not be your regular shoe, it cannot be your regular eyeglasses. Like there's always your own tribe that is going to follow you. And that's why I, apl I applaud you because you found your niche with uh, female founders um, that are looking to get that advice from you and to invest into their own uh, knowledge where, uh, you know, you just don't come in as a consultant, do the work and leave. They're actually getting a lot of experience, knowledge, um, and even technical skills. So I think it is really valuable work that you're providing right now to the world. Um, and uh, thank you so much for the interview. Good luck. With, yes, thank you uh, for having everything. me.